Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. There you are. <laughs> Zach, I am grateful to be with you today on this wonderful occasion. And, you know, even though you're fairly new in this church, I'm amazed at how your community is thrilled about this day. And it's wonderful to see your heart for Christ, your servant spirit, your humility, your open-heartedness, your teachability. All of those things are an example and encouragement to all of us and me included. And I just simply say, may the Lord preserve you in your devotion to Christ for the rest of your life. Amen. The joy I have in ordaining you is real, and I want you to keep it in mind because my sermon will be serious. This is a sobering passage, and what I mean is Luke chapter 12. That's our topic for today. Both in a figure of speech way of saying sobering in the literal sense of being sober. Jesus calls all his disciples to spiritual sobriety. That's the first part. That's the first part of this really two-part parable. And Peter asks in between, is this for everyone, all your followers, or is it just for us, the apostles? And Jesus' response is to up the ante for Peter. In effect, Jesus is saying the role you play and the authority that you have within the oikos, the household of God, will be up to the decisions you make in response to this first question, which is a serious call to full allegiance, which is made to all disciples. And in particular, the way an appointed leader, a steward, applies allegiance to Jesus to the question of his purpose in life, to serve or to be served. That's a question you'll have to face. So there are two interconnected parables, and let's dig in. The first parable governs the whole conversation. It's a call to be ready at all times, in every moment, to meet the Lord face to face. A basic call of Christian discipleship, by the way. This is Discipleship 101 for all of us, a readiness to meet the Lord. But the message is conveyed in three images. The first image is, a, is to be dressed and ready to act, to move on his command, to let your loins stay girded at all times for obedience and action. Don't let anything flap around your legs or distract you or entangle you in terms of readiness to hear and act on the master's words and will. That's echoed in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, where we are told to lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us and be ready to run a race. And it's a marathon race. It's a, a lifelong race. But the teaching in Luke pushes us a little further. It's not just to be disentangled, but it says basically be ready. Be positively ready. Uh, have your hiking boots on. Have your belt tightened. Your gloves in your pocket. Know where your hat is so you don't have to go look for it. You can grab it and run when Jesus says to. Now, during the life and ministry of Jesus, Peter was caught, frankly, pretty flat-footed more than once. He was unprepared to move, especially his three denials. But after Pentecost, it's clear that Peter got it. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he uses exactly these same words. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Be ready and quick to obey. And that's the question on the table. One of my favorite quotes, Zach, and uh, I love this when I use it quite often. From Albert Day, obedience is indispensable. Not to a static code, however helpful that may be at times, but obedience to God. 
who is present with us in every situation and is speaking to us all the time. Every obedience, however small, parenthesis, if any obedience is ever small, quickens our sensitivity to him and our capacity to understand him and so makes more real our sense of his presence. The second image in the parable is have your lamps burning, filled with oil on the watch. And it reminds us, of course, of the parable of the ten virgins, five foolish and five unprepared, five ready and five unready. Being constantly prepared for the coming of the bridegroom through the inestimable gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is anticipating Pentecost. And the fire in the lamp and the light in the lantern is the everyday filling of the Holy Spirit. Since the day of Pentecost, it's possible for every Christian man, woman, and child to respond to the challenges and the opportunities of the moment in the power of the Spirit. We are never alone. We are never up to us to figure out how to do what we are told to do. So the topic clearly in this image is the filling of the Spirit. Obedience, filling of the Spirit. The third image is waiting at the door, listening for the footfall, the knock, the voice of the returning master. And I, I particularly love this image just because it, it's this constant readiness to open the door to welcome Jesus into my home, so to speak. And that requires utter familiarity with his voice. And when we hear the voice on the other side of the door, we know whose voice it is because we've been listening to that voice. When we hear his footfall, we know his footfall because we're familiar with that footfall. And there's this joyous, loving response to Jesus and his words and his voice, his presence. So I believe what's on this third image is love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. And these three images weave together, I think, in a very powerful way, all essentially keep communicating the same message. Disciples are called and commanded to be constantly ready to meet Jesus, to be on high alert, ready to move, to be filled and aflamed with the Holy Spirit, to be familiar in our love for the Lord. And I believe it's no accident that the one that ties obedience and hearing the love of God is the filling of the Spirit. That enables us to obey. That enables us to know the voice of Jesus. Together, this constitutes the call to be ready at all times to meet the Lord face to face. Now, there are a couple of practical ways that I understand this. We could read this as ready all our lives for the final day, the day when we will meet Jesus face to face in heaven or at death. Every day is a day we do not deserve. You realize that? None of us is too young to die. Do you realize that? You realize that time is a gift from the Lord to be received and used according to his will. There's a false narrative in our world that we can beat death or that it doesn't matter. We can ignore it. We can put it off, never worry about it. I was recently at a parish visit to your sister church in Winston-Salem Christ Church, and it was incredibly impressive to me to say that part of it, to realize that part of their discipleship program is a course called Foundations for Christian Dying. And it's a five-week study of what it means to face death as Christians and for the church to be prepared to see death. And above all, Christians should and can understand death differently. We should take it in all seriousness, with all accountability, and we should also face it with all hope and confidence. So we take it seriously. We don't avoid it. But nevertheless, there is a hope that imbues us. 
I love 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, because it describes our pointing toward death as an eagerness, an eagerness. Listen to what it says. John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as, we, as he is. We shall complete our baptism to be like Christ. And John says this, and everyone who thus hopes in him, this is hope, purifies himself as he is pure. So being ready for the final day is a way to be ready for Jesus. I think there's another way that we could look at this practically, and that means being ready and alert to hear and see Jesus every day and in the every day. As I was saying at the beginning, the world is aflame with the fire of God. Mother Teresa says this about herself and her life, seeking the face of God in everything, everyone at all the times, and his hand in everything. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world, seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly, everyday appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor. I see Jesus in every human being, she says. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus, I must feed him. This is sick Jesus, I must heal. This one has leprosy or gangrene, I must touch them. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love and serve Jesus. Now, again, these comments are fairly self-evident. This is Discipleship 101, but Zach, one thing I do not find necessarily self-evident is how serious Jesus is about this. This is no wink-wink. There's no kidding going on. This is not hyperbolic for the extremists. This is for all of us. This is one of a number of parables and teachings in which all disciples are called to live in line with a different North Star internally than those who don't know Christ. It's like our hearts magnetized toward the coming of Christ in the face of Jesus. He does not offer an alternative way to the abundant life, the faithful life, except through the narrow and low door of full allegiance and attentiveness to him as the Lord. Again, Zach, this is the topic, full allegiance to Jesus. Now, Peter hears this parable, and he says in verse 41, is this for everybody, or is this for us who are your apostles? And what... Also, are waiting for Jesus in a particular way. It's a different way. They're stewards. The stewards have a calling and a position within the oikos, the household. For stewards, the concept of basic preparedness is translated into faithful service to the members of the household. So we prepare to meet Jesus by faithfully serving the people of Jesus. The managers and the stewards within the household are responsible to work faithfully and fervently to provide the whole gamut of the needs, food and water, rest, protection, guidance, healing, whatever the moment demands. Obviously, no one deacon or priest is responsible for doing all these things all times. But Zach, by your ordination, you are being conferred spiritual authority to use for the well-being of the flock, for the sake of others. That's the first statement of your exhortation. It belongs to the office of a deacon to share in the humility and service of Christ for the strengthening of his household, the strengthening of the church. So your calling calls you to walk through the flock and your eyes shifting even more to the question, 
What is the need that I see on the face of that person? How can I help? How can I love? Who's confused? Who's hungry? Who's lost? Who's wounded? Who's off by themselves? And how do I move into their lives? And so Jesus leaves the question hanging for Peter. Will you wait for me, actively wait for me by caring for my household? What will you do? What will you do? Zach, the church has suffered in all ages when its leaders do not recognize the heightened call to faithfulness and self-sacrifice for the sake of the, of the flock. You have a higher claim on your life and, and, and time. With authority comes responsibility. As we talked about yesterday, when was it? Friday. Authority comes from submission. I, that is allegiance. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus goes on to state way, the particular ways in which leaders fall in this heightened call, fail to be alert, fail to take the governing principle of readiness to meet Jesus to their hearts. They could be simply cavalier. You read on the text. It says they could just simply another, you know, expect that they got all the time in the world. More darkly, Jesus says that they can claim an independence and a power based on the position that they've given. They can use the position for selfish gain. Seeking the office for self-validation. Seeking to be admired. Meeting unresolved insecurities by literally using people on a power trip. Abusing them, really, is what Jesus says. Not some overt abuse, but using them to meet their own needs, which is the exact opposite of the purpose for your calling. Or another way Jesus describes is you can seek your own pleasure, just simply your pleasure. Prioritize pursuing food and drink and material and fleshly pleasures, which is an enormous temptation for leaders. Leaders can often, to be honest, feel certain that because they have served and they're tired that they deserve a break today. You deserve a break today. We buy that line. And the examples of leaders who have fallen into the flesh are legion. The warning to faithless leaders is severe. Jesus says there's a very real possibility that they could live their life out and find out that they've never known the Lord that they claim to serve. And the underlying spiritual principle is simply this, the, to whom much is given, much is required. And that's the reality. We who are leaders are judged by a stricter standard, James chapter 3. Now, it's remarkable that Jesus does not suddenly, you know, having said something tough, uh, you know, soften the blow. <laughs> but he doesn't. And I don't think we should rush to, make, rush to make this somehow not as fierce as it is. Ordained ministry is a fierce call. Jesus puts claims on us, Zach, that change everything. You and I call to leadership are simply not free to live to ourselves anymore. To shirk this duty is a serious matter. But on the other side of the warning, there is a heart call that we do need to hear. And I emphasize this in that third image, that waiting at the door, that eagerness to see Jesus. You don't stand at the door waiting to greet someone and welcome them because you hate them or fear them or disdain them. You stand there because you love them. And even the first disciples, Peter and his crew, received this very hard word and a lot of other hard words, by the way, and they stuck with Jesus because they had experienced something. It was more even, I believe, than the compelling miracles and messages, which were compelling them themselves. But I actually think they had experienced the love of Jesus, a love that they never had experienced before. 
Peter says in John chapter six, when a particularly hard statement was made, Jesus says, do you want to go too? Because people were leaving in droves and Peter goes, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But I love what John says at the beginning of his first letter. And I want you to hear this with eyes and ears to hear. John begins his letter, says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things to you that our joy may be made complete. What are you hearing that? Do you hear somebody who was awkward with Jesus? The opposite. Our hands touched him. Our eyes saw, our ears heard. And we're telling you about this because we're in fellowship. There's a friendship here. And we want you to participate in that friendship. And there's a joy of inviting people into the friendship that we have with Jesus. Is that not a statement of love? Later on, John says, we love because he first loved us. So the ground for this hard message, and it is a hard message, is even more intensely grounded in the love of Christ for us. You hear what I said? Not our love for Christ. It's even deeper than that. It's his love for us. Zach, our culture is uncomfortable with high standards and hard commands. I personally am uncomfortable with high standards and hard commands. I'd love a gospel that baptizes my own desires and inclinations and says that what I want is just peachy keen. You know what I mean? You're right on target, doing exactly what you want. But fortunately for my soul, it's not the nature of the gospel. (laughs) Because often what I need most of all, and in fact, what has been most meaningful to me in my life and my relationships many times, is the rebukes that I've received in love. The corrections that get me back on track. So I want to end by emphasizing that this wholehearted allegiance and orientation of your heart, soul, mind, and will toward Jesus is always predicated on his love and grace being poured in your life. And I urge you to constantly turn the question of your love for Jesus, which is mixed into this, into the presumptive topic, the ground underneath it, and that is his love for you. And I want you to remember that your prayers for a devotion, which are important, and you are a devoted man, need to be founded on prayers for the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to receive the even deeper message of his love for you. Because he will love you when you don't love him. He will stay with you when you turn away. He will pick you up when you fall. And that is essential for your ministry. Thank you, Lord, that we stand here in the love of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.